0: Inside my mind That you're still here Right here by my side I can't wrap my head Around what's happening I can't get no sleep, no peace of mind
1: Try not to
0: beat the heat in summer madness Only thoughts of you can get me by And I feel like sometimes I cry Cause I feel so good to
2: be alive, and there's not a doubt inside my mind that you're still here, right here by my
0: side. Times are changing, strangers getting stranger.
1: Welcome back to our afternoon or early morning episode, still kind of early morning afternoon, depending on where you're located at, of Guy Live B2B Jam Session. That was Gene Ako, Summer 2020, which has been a song that I've been jamming to. And shout out to her both thing, Big Sean, who recently just launched an album that everyone has been super excited about. So make sure you go check out Big Sean's latest album, one of my favorite rappers. I remember growing up, I used to love listening to him. But with that said, thank you so much for tuning in with us for this early morning, early afternoon episode of Guy Live b Jam Session. Let us know where you're tuning in at. If you're from Oakland, show some love. We're in your backyard. Let's go ahead and show you love and recognize you. Hope you had a great weekend. My special guest today, Britt Andriata, is a friend of mine. She has been one of the leaders Thought leaders leading the LD industry for years now. And she's an internationally recognized thought leader who creates brain science-based solutions. She's the CEO of Seven Mind Inc., and she draws her on her unique background, really focusing on leadership, neuroscience, and psychology and learning to unlock the best in people and the organizations that they work in. And I think this is the most prevalent topic for us to talk about, not only because guide is in the L&D space, that's one thing, but because there is a lot of learning that needs to go on, I think, in a lot of different sides in today's day and age, especially given how the pandemic has completely shifted how organizations operate. And Britt is a leader in the industry, and she continues to, even, beyond this, even through this pandemic, talk to thousands and thousands of leaders and organizations on how they can rethink and shift. In the new times that we're in. So, she's actually, in case you didn't know, she's the former chief learning officer of Lynda.com, which was recently acquired by LinkedIn Learning not too long ago. And she's really, really built a hell of a community in this space and so big that she has 10 million views worldwide of her courses as a TEDx speaker online as well. So, make sure you check out some of her TEDx videos on YouTube. I've checked some of them out. I love them. And I've taken some of her courses on LinkedIn Learning as well. And I love them as well. So we're really going to be diving deep on her career, her background, and her thoughts on how leaders can really foster a culture of learning in today's day and age. So make sure you show her some love. And in fact, thank you so much, Benedict, for tuning in from Grand Rapids. Shout out to you, homie. Thank you so much, Mr. Castro upstate New York, my guy. Much love, man. Appreciate you, brother. Britt, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
2: I'm great, Tim. How are you?
1: Doing well. You know, I was just talking to you earlier about the the fires happening in California and you and you mentioned you're safe, which I'm so grateful for.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And I'm and I'm worried about all the people who are not, just to have a fire wow. on top of a pandemic just seems especially difficult I want 2020 to be over I want it over <laughs>
1: it's yeah and once again rest in peace Chadwick Boseman oh man oh, yeah. were, were you a fan of, of, of the Black Panther
2: absolutely absolutely and yeah. just so heartsick at his loss he's just such a a leader and and um his work was really profound so just feeling a lot of sadness about his passing
1: yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, we we've all been hurting, but he, he left quite a, a a great legacy behind. Ray, we'd love for you to share a little bit more about the legacy you've created, um, and the work that you've done, uh, in, in your space. You know, how long have you been, you know, one an author, a leader, and more importantly, uh, I think a, a true figure in the space of of, of L and D and helping people realize that they're wired to learn.
2: You know, it's been the theme throughout my career, just kind of helping people be their best selves. So, you know, if you go back all the way to uh, the beginning of my career, it's always been kind of a thread, but in terms of kind of being known to other people, probably, you know, it started around 2010, 2011, Um, I was already doing leadership work within higher education, and then I switched over to be the chief learning officer at Linda.com and started studying the neuroscience of learning just to be better at my craft just so i could be better at designing learning experiences for other people and i was so blown away by what i was finding that it became a talk and then so many people were like this needs to be a book i was like okay so i turned it into a book and um and i thought that i was you know it was going to just be that and then we went through the acquisition and as we were going through the acquisition i realized that everything we knew about change did not match up with what I was experiencing. And I was trained in all the change management models. So I ended up writing my second book on change and why we're wired to resist it. And then I guess I I was like, well, I guess this is a thing now. So my third book is on the brain science of teams and what brings out the best in folks and collaboration and, and, and why exclusion is so damaging and all kinds of stuff. So I'm really just fascinated by what makes us tick and how we can all tick better and particularly looking at workspaces, because I feel like, in a lot of ways, work asks people to go against their biology. And mm. if we can just help leaders understand some of the biological aspects, we can create better workplaces. So yeah. uh, I'm on a mission, slowly. <laughs> <laughs> but probably people have seen me the last five or six years having more more visible influence.
1: Yeah. No. So let's dive deep on that. You know, how in what ways do leaders kind of have uh, you know, people at work go against their biology because I think you you you, you make a powerful point, right? And especially now that COVID nineteen has changed the landscape of work in the sense of we're all now having to form new routines. So not only is biology changing, but like our behavioral kind of characteristics are changing. So, you know, what ways do you think that leaders kind of force people to work against their biology?
2: Oh, well, there's so many, but let me, let let me hit off some highlights. So just in the learning space, you know, the natural human attention span is roughly 20 minutes before we really can't take in more info and we need to do something with that information to move it into memory. And yet, when you think about most learning events, including, you know, lectures in college and stuff, people will talk at you for an hour, hour and a half. (laughs) That's not how the brain learns. The brain learns in 15 to 20 minute segments. We can have someone just take a minute to talk to their partner, do a one minute reflection, you know, think of an example. It doesn't take much for the brain to move it into short and long-term memory. um, but that can help learning be more memorable and people could be more effective in their learning. That's one way. Um, another way is around change. You know, we're wired to resist change. Change is really first a harbinger of potential danger. And after we get enough information, do we settle down and and move through change because we are adaptive as well. But a lot of leaders, you know, don't think about that. They just announce change. They don't really think about giving people a clear vision or mission for the change. People are certainly generally not supported in moving through the change. It's kind of like, okay, here it is, you know, go do it. Um, And so, you know, the the statistic is that 50 to 70% of all change initiatives fail. Wow. if you think about how much, you know, that's billions of dollars and thousands of people hours and, and usually change initiatives are designed by thoughtful people, but they don't take into account the human side and the fact that people do resist change and need clear information and support in order to move through it. We can even see it with this pandemic, right? It's, it's you know, the places where people are getting clear guidance and and leadership, they're responding and getting on board with the change more, you know, in a more uniform way than places where that's not there. And then just to highlight from the third book on teams, you know, it turns out exclusion is incredibly damaging to people and then teams and organizations. And exclusion actually registers in the brain as physical pain. It lights up the same center of the brain that physical pain does. And this goes back to our, our tribal species heritage, which, you know, for us to succeed, we needed to, and to thrive and live, we needed to be part of a community. If we were oh. out from the tribe, we were likely to die. So we have a lot of biological mechanisms that pay attention to where we are in a group and making sure that we're connected and, and part of our community. And we're very sensitive to exclusion. And so exclusion drives all kinds of negative biological you know, you're more likely to get sick, depressed, anxious, your productivity goes down, uh, long-term exclusion tends to make people aggressive and even violent, or they commit suicide. And so, you know, we're seeing a lot of these things play out right now as we're all disconnected from each other, or the pain from communities like Black and African-American communities, where They've been excluded from normal society and from fair treatment for generations, and so that that pain builds up. It becomes a collective pain. So you know the stuff. The stuff is everywhere, and um, it really goes back to how we are wired. And the cool thing is we are biologically identical underneath other, Underneath our appearances of difference, which I really believe in celebrating our diversity and what makes us all unique and different. That's really important. Um, and biologically we're identical. We, we, we have the, we have the same fears. We have the same response to change. We have the same needs to belong and to become our best selves. And so there's a lot of things that, that unite us that sometimes don't get focused on.
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I definitely love the the one of uh, what you shared about attention spans because <laughs> I've definitely been in trainings that took hours to days, and you know, people come out of it, they didn't really change, right? <laughs> like, they didn't really learn anything. And you know, even for us at Guy, you know, we're really more so focused on bite sized training and learning and development because there's cognitive neuroscience behind it. But it's funny because I think that you know, we are moving towards a society where everyone's attention spans is cont- continues to wane. And, you know, we do need to find, figure out a way to kind of engage people in a much more contextual, much more just-in-time format. But also I think what, what's so powerful about what you said is the fact that how inc- exclusion also plays a role in kind of if we feel engaged and if we wanna learn, and if we're more open to change, And I think even now in today's day and age with a lot of talk around diversity, equity and inclusion, you know, I think there's this huge uh, part of the conversation where we need to figure out more ways to recognize people's diversity.
2: Absolutely. You know, people need to be seen and valued for what they bring to the group. There's a lot of really interesting research, though, and I go into it in the book Wired to Connect, which is we don't actually, you know, as individuals... It's how our leaders frame our differences that really teach us how to respond to them. So leaders that say, hey, we're all on the same team and everybody matters, those organizations are not torn apart by some of this divisiveness where leaders who say, you know, we are different and there's us versus them and all this kind of stuff, it actually creates a biological response in people. And so leaders really determine if mm-hmm. folks unite and start to work together and, and see value in each other, or they set the tone for the us versus them. And what's interesting is when we are told by our leaders that we're in an us versus them relationship. So we can have an us and them. Okay, there's us and then there's those guys. But when we're set up as us versus them, really interesting things happen biologically So, uh, what happens is like if, if my team wins quote unquote, or has a success, I'll get serotonin and dopamine in my brain when my team has a success. I'm also much more likely to see my group. Um, I'll be more likely to forgive someone in my group for doing something to me. And I'm much more likely to, uh, engage in acts of altruism for the other side, for the, them, if they fail my brain gets a serotonin and dopamine boost so we actually take pleasure in their failing we're much more likely to go to judgment and derogation and engage in acts of hostility so setting up us versus them is the first step that autocrats and dictators have to take before they can move people to then doing harm to each other so it's it's the precursor to genocide down the road and there's a lot of research that shows that
1: that's a powerful, 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 powerful concept because, you know, you definitely don't want that type of kind of climate in an organization, <laughs> right? At <No>. all.
2: <laughs> well, some organizations have been have been hindered for decades because they set up a highly competitive environment. And when you, when you set people up as us versus them, what happens is, you know, biologically, they take that on. And then if you re the groups later... They don't override that biology. It's kind of wired in now that I don't trust this person. I don't trust this group, and so organizations that have had the history of highly being highly competitive and pitting people or pitting teams against each other, they don't actually don't recover. They may get a short-term burst of productivity, but ultimately, over time, the organization has less and less trust and less collaboration, and it and they feel the effects for decades.
1: Wow. well, let me ask you. Right, given the context of how everyone now is. Every company now is a remote company or a distributed company to a degree. You know, what do they do to make sure that they're fostering an us environment with their people?
2: It's a great question. So two things that we need to be careful of in the remote environment. One is, you know, biologically, we need, you know, our body is wired to read communication and intent and intention and in others using a lot of pieces of biological data. So we certainly use, you know, facial expressions, tone of voice, but mm-hmm. our brain can actually read micromuscular shifts in the, in the, in the face and particularly all the different zones that convey uh, motion that get lost on a 2d screen. Right? So right now you, your head is maybe an inch and a half big on my screen. Yeah. And I go, and I like that, right. And I can't see the rest of your body and now all of your facial expressions are compressed into a 2D flat representation. So when we're in space with each other, which is what we're what we're built for, is to be with each other and we communicate, our brains have a lot more data to understand communication and start to see all those nuances and all that kind of stuff. So in an remote environment, this is what why we can do the whole thing is 10 times as hard to try to read communication in people. We're having to concentrate harder. We're having to look more intently. We're going to have to listen more intently. So two things, you know, if in a remote environment, um, know that Zoom fatigue is real, so give people sure. breaks, um, you're going to have to over-index on communication and time together to build trust. So if the team was well-established and had trust before we went to remote, they probably are hanging in there. Um, but they could still benefit from having little social gatherings to stay connected for all those spontaneous conversations. Like what movie did you see this weekend and blah, blah, blah. Where'd you go? What'd you do? Um, But if you're onboarding anyone new right now, they are going to have to have many more meetings in order to build trust because we're we're missing so much of the biological data. So you're going to have to over-index on kind of getting people connected and up to speed. With that said, you know, whenever teams are really needing to do important work together, bringing them together, even if it's distance with masks on, is better than staying completely remote. And when we can be together again someday when it's safe, there, people are gonna really hunger for it. We're missing each other. We are a tribal species and we like to be connected in physical space and time with each other.
1: Yeah, it's so true. It's 100% true. You know, I've gone on the record, on this show and on LinkedIn and other platforms are saying that I miss in-person um, connection. But my one of my buddies, uh, Chris Hurd, who's a huge remote work um, geek and kind of like advocate, you know, he's like, you know, remote work is cool and all, but like the human connection is one thing, but everyone still loves the fact that they have more control over their environment and work because we're all remote. Um, but, you know, to, to, to your point, but there is something uh, about being around other people and being in community in the workplace that is really, really crucial. You know, we'd love for your thoughts. Do you think we're moving towards a more hybrid workforce where, you know, more workers are going to be spending two to three you know days in the office, maybe more so like huddle offices? They come in and out and then like for most part, two days at home, working from home. How do you kind of see the new uh, what's, what's going to be the new? Uh, workflow for people going to work. I, I'm really interested to get your thoughts on that.
2: Well, you know, of course it depends on what industry we're talking about. So yeah. you know, white collar workers, tech workers, you know, where they can do all of their work from a screen is very different than grocery store people and restaurant people. Right. So True. I would say for sure, you know, a couple of things have happened in this pandemic and part of what's interesting is that, you know, it takes the brain a while to form a habit. It's very uncomfortable and awkward at first, but once you do something 40 to 50 times on average is what it takes, it gets easier. So at first, all the difficulty of pivoting to work from home and all the frustration with it was there, but we're in this long enough that people have, had, have moved past it, now it's gotten easier. And we've stripped away all the stupid stuff. Like, really, do we need to wear business suits? Can't we just be? (laughs) I know some people are like, I'm never putting on jeans again. Forget it. Um, So and I think there will be a rebellion (laughs) when we make people dress that way again. But um, you know, I think the future of work, two things happened in this pandemic. One, organizations that were really against work from home and believed that if you let people work from home, they were just going to slack off and watch TV all day discovered what studies have been proving for years, which is work from home people work even harder than their in-office folks, because we're stripped of all that spontaneous communication where you gather by the coffee maker and stuff. I'm not saying that's necessarily good. People do need breaks and people do need to take a break in the workday. But you know the bottom line is people working from home are totally productive. And in addition, you know, there's a lot of companies that have to look at cost savings now. And when you realize you're spending all this money on commercial office space and you don't need to be, or you could be getting by with a third of the space that you're actually renting. Right. And then we've got all the commuting time and how long it takes for people to get to their jobs. You know, in big cities, it can take you an hour and a half to go 20 miles. You know, it can be, Hmm. it can be really uh, quite a long commute and those people are not productive on the commute. So, um, I think from, from a cost savings perspective, we will have a, a blended workforce where you probably are working from home two or three days a week and you're going into the office. With that said, though, I think it's really important that leaders of organizations don't shirk their duty to create good working environments at home. So for example, in the office, cubicles and desk monitors and all that are set up to be ergonomically correct so that we reduce repetitive motion injuries. Mm. Well, if people are not supported in getting that stand-up desk at home or that ergonomic chair at home, you're going to start to see some of those injuries come back and and affect companies in their, in their health benefits. So mm. I think as we do this blended thing. And yeah, people are going to like working from home. They don't, they can just roll out of bed and hop on the computer and be ready to go And really? they can hang out with their cat. And all that stuff. <laughs> um, the other thing that we could explore is making workspaces a little bit more conducive to comfort and relaxation. You know, like uh, we've made them pretty rigid. People don't get a space to call their own anymore. You're not even allowed to put out things on, you know, you may not even be able to Claim a cubicle as your own, let alone decorate it and make it feel like home. I think those have those things have dehumanized the workplace for a while. Wow. Um, and then the last thing I would say, because I'm seeing a lot of organizations deal with this right now, contactless is going to continue to be a thing. This is this is the first pandemic. It will not be the only pandemic. So I think this is a wake up call for everyone to look at sanitization, and it may be that. I mean, I know organizations right now that are changing all the doorknobs to be ones that you operate with your feet.
1: I with your feet? Wow.
2: That you, that you move it down at the bottom of the door and it's something you do with your feet. Oh, cool, cool. i
1: thought like you you actually like use the-
2: No. you <laughs> reinventing how a door works, right? right? Touch with our um, another organization I know is, re- is removing all upholstery from the office. They're moving to all- hard surfaces so that everything can just be sprayed down at night and disinfected cubicles may eventually be floor to ceiling cubicles with their own individual airflow and air filtration you know we're going to have to think through and change this stuff because while we would all love this pandemic to be over and it and that will eventually happen there will be more and so we're just too connected we're just too connected globally now and we work so closely together that uh, the sanitization piece, I think, will com- c- continue to um, reinvent how work is done and where it's done.
1: That is so powerful. you. I, I mean, you literally, you just, like, dropped so many gems on me that I'm like, makes me think about how, how we should grow our team. And <laughs> like, what are some of the things we need to be thinking about? Because these are very, it's very crucial, because I think a lot of these things inform culture now. Right, a lot of organizations on how they should change their culture. And it's funny because before we went on went live on this episode, you said you weren't feeling sharp, but these are a lot of sharp thoughts, Britt. <laughs> and, and I think that so many leaders need to really tune in and record this because, you know, I think this pandemic has shifted culture for many organizations. Some of them are, are, are continuing to struggle in terms of how do you rebuild the culture that you want and how do you kind of conform to the context of, of the times we live in now so you know these are very very powerful thoughts and i think I, I i love your point about okay we dehumanized like for i think the last 10 years we were so focused on automation and robotics and all of these different things that to a degree work was being dehumanized i remember when i was working with we one of the reasons why i loved working with we work is because they were kind of humanizing the workspace right so you didn't you didn't have those cubicles and and all of that you had like open formats and you could see your friends you could see your teammates you can go say hi to them. And even though when you're working in a WeWork space, it's kind of really crowded and very loud, but there was still kind of a human component there that people appreciate. And a lot of people appreciate about WeWork. But now due to this pandemic, I kind of feel as if a lot of organizations are thinking like, well, how do we make the workspace a lot a lot less human again? <laughs> and like kind of revert back to kind of like uh, 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 you know, 10, 20 years ago and like I'm seeing a lot more cubicles. People thinking about going back into cubicles and kind of segmenting people off because you know you don't want to you know be in contact with someone that may have the virus. So you know it, it depends on you know a lot of leaders should be thinking about where can we go from here that creates a better work environment if we do kind of return to a hybrid model where people come working come work at an office versus us kind of going back to like 30, 40 years ago where there's more cubicles. And people don't feel connected to their work environment. So uh, these are very powerful thoughts, Britt. You're making me think.
2: <laughs> well, I'm glad. You know, I think for for leaders right now, you know, the one thing that I would say to everyone listening is that, and I'm working with a lot of organizations right now, and I'm seeing it in real time. Like people are exhausted. They are exhausted. You know, this work from home thing. Everyone kind of dug in to do it, and we pivoted, and everyone made that sprint, but but it's getting harder to do it you know people are tired of being home they want to reconnect with folks they want to have a sense of normal people are really hitting their maximum and that's showing up as people being snappier and snarkier with each other there's more conflict happening depression and anxiety is rising and, and suicide is rising you know people are really struggling and I think right now you know people need to be really paying attention to how do we connect folks how do we- help them thrive through what is still a very difficult time and make sure that we're supporting people through these next few months and then as it gets easier we can start to think about what what it looks like after that.
1: Love that love that it's so true it's so true. Thank you so much, Britt, for joining us for this lovely, lovely episode of Guideline BDP Jam session. Britt, where can our amazing community follow you, learn more about your work and and just be a part of a movement that you continue to lead?
2: Thank you. You know, everything can be found on my website, which is my name, BrittAndreata.com. And I'm very active on LinkedIn. So I love it when people reach out and connect with me or follow me there. I'm always posting on these topics and sharing new resources.
1: And she's amazing on Twitter as well, uh, and Instagram. She has a really, really awesome Instagram. So make sure you definitely check her out on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Britt, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you. Can you please come back on for, for another episode in the future? I would love to, Tim. Bring me back anytime. <laughs> Thank you so much, Britt. Talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs> Bye. And that was Mrs. the amazing great Andriotta, who shared a little bit more about some of the work that she's working on. With that said, we're gonna take a really quick break and I'm gonna go ahead and get ready to bring on our next guest, Tyler Faye, who's leading an amazing, amazing movement. You're gonna get to know who she is in a few minutes. And if you haven't heard of Tyler Faye, Don't worry. It'll be your first time hearing her on this show. With that said, take a little break, get some water, and we'll be right back. Talk soon.
2: It's all in the eyes you and me. Words just disguise all the things that you be. What is deep, steeper than steep So who knows this type of fire is stronger in time Time won't go on I won't so quickly Can't hold heart and Righteousness I won't, won't, won't. Can't, 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 can't. No, no, come please, you're all about it.
1: and we're back and we're back we're back we're back we're back my apologies y'all so if if I go on mute or if this if the video drops out on me please forgive me we'll try to edit it out in post-production but my next guest super excited to have her on Tyler Faye she is a poet model actress marketing guru an art director and just all around creative and I'm excited to really dive deep with her on the movement that she's been leading on Instagram as a creative in terms of really just having artists kind of corral around this movement and this renaissance that we're seeing around the Black Lives Matter movement but also this kind of creative expression you know I've I've said this on Twitter on LinkedIn before is that you know we're kind of experiencing a post-COVID renaissance Um, due to a lot of people just finding out different outlets to put their creativity and lead their movements and put themselves out there through their artwork and through their passion for whatever it is that they're building. And I've had the pleasure of talking with Tyler, and she has such an amazing dynamic background and reason why she does what she does. And I thought it would be lovely to have her on the show, share a little bit more about her, how she got to poetry and what she does in the marketing world as well as as a model. With that said, let's go ahead and bring on the amazing... Tyler fit. Hey, Tyler.
0: Hello. How are you? Great.
1: Hey, how are you doing?
0: Good. I'm doing really well. It's really hot in California, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's
1: burning in, in certain in certain yeah, areas. We're
0: literally on fire. It's it's very really cool. <laughs> Where
1: are you tuning in from in California, by the way?
0: I'm in Pasadena, so I'm just outside uh-huh. of downtown LA, about 15 minutes.
1: Uh, yeah, I think our last guest Britt, was actually tuning in from Pasadena as well. With Tyler, we'd love for you to share a little bit of how long you've been kind of doing the work you do as an actor and as a model, and, and even even being in California, kind of uh, living the dream and doing your thing.
0: <laughs> uh, I feel like living the dream is a, a w- weird way to put it, but <laughs> I'm living my dream. Uh, I am. I've been doing modeling since I was 17. I started when I was in high school and. I modeled for a little while, probably up until my, the end of my senior year. Um, and as I got into college, I just recognized that I wasn't being viewed in the in the light that I felt like I, I wanted to be. And it detoured me from modeling for a few years. And I picked it back up when I was about 19, 20. And that's when I got signed professionally. And I've been modeling and acting ever since. Um, but I started to do my creative work on the entrepreneurship side probably about three and a half years ago now. Um, So, right around the time that I started modeling, I actually had started working with um, a fine artist from Houston, and I was managing him and his business, and so we were developing an eco-friendly shoe line, and I was helping him kind of get into the nuance of the new digital world, and Mm. just kind of really taking this, like, really large order. (laughs) I didn't even think that it was such a tall task, and I really just tackled it head-on. I learned from, like, one, I read one marketing book, and I swore I was just, like, I got this, like, I got it. <laughs> I Sometimes that's really how it starts is like, you just start to tell yourself what you feel called to and you start to get better and better at it as you practice. But yeah, I just pitched a marketing plan to my first client and hit the ground running. And ever since then I've mm-hmm. tried lots of different things since, but it's probably been about four solid years of me doing creative work.
1: That's amazing. And the thing is, your background, you know, you actually didn't go to school for marketing, right? You went to school for a completely different degree. Can you share a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah. So marketing came a little bit later. I didn't even recognize that what I was doing was marketing. I I think it was more of just this idea of being a visionary and being able to take these big visions and break them down into what the plans were. That really is what all of marketing is. Um, but I went to school for rhetoric communication studies and philosophy, and so I was really studying from a social dynamic how conversations and persuasion actually influence and inspire people to make decisions or how they, like, actually make work more efficient on a leadership style. So there are a lot of different avenues of rhetoric communication, but on a general basis, it's about persuasion and social influence using communication um and the philosophy aspect was just this idea of like it came a little bit later in my college career but i was just really i feel like inspired by the fact that i was so articulate but then it was my peers around me also in my department they were really articulate but they were they weren't constructing knowledge for themselves so it wasn't Mm. that they had any ideas they were just really 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 good at presenting other people's ideas and so I i took to the philosophy because i actually wanted to be a part of this sort of construction of thought and construction of theory for a lot of different things, um, my emphasis in philosophy was really um, cultural at black black studies and um, consciousness studies. So basically how we're using consciousness as the next step in life and how like, black people and where I come from is a large part of how I approach that in the world. So. I don't yeah. know. It's nothing that has to do with anything that I'm doing in life, but it has <laughs> to do with what I'm doing. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Do you think do you it informs really? some of the way you think about marketing and just like your creative work? And if so, you know what aspects and angles.
0: So, what do you think? Uh, my education kind of plays. How do you think my education plays into my marketing approach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, oh, this is so funny. My team will love this answer because I think, or well, I'm the youngest person on my team. And so I am this kind of bridge between a lot of different generations and advocating for everybody. It's been I work in a Black-owned business. And so I also am coming specifically from, like, Generation Z of the Black community. And so yeah. I think for me, my perspective is always, like my favorite word that I use in every single meeting is intersectionality. And so this Mm -hmm. idea that all of these identities that are working in me are working all at once. Like I'm not just black one day. I'm not just a woman one day. I'm not just queer one day. I'm not just a poet one day. They all work at the same exact time all the time. And so I think my approach is that if you learn enough context about the intersectionality about people's experiences, you have, it's like that to reach them. And so Truly Mm -hmm. persuasive people are so dedicated to learning about other people because the only true way to inspire someone is to actually know about what they like, what they care about, how they feel about certain things, what their responses Mm -hmm. are. Um, And so my approach to marketing is really bringing to the forefront that people have a multitude of identities and that these identities need to be honored in the way that we approach them for services and for business. And so I think for me, it's all about this, like, I was a super anti-work in the system person when I first just started social justice work in general. I was like, there's no reason to work in the system. Like, They have nothing for us. But then it became this aspect of like, there's a way to play it half and half, where you are empowering individuals to be able to work outside of status quo, while at the same time you have the backing of status quo to be able to fall back on when it comes to actually providing resources. And so somebody in my thought process um, like in terms of doing like rhetoric and philosophy, somebody has to be the bridge, like the port at the bridge. That's the example that I always give. Is like we're constantly building or trying to build these bridges, but the person that works on the side on either side of the bridge is not the same person that builds the bridge. The person that mm. crosses the bridge is not the same person that is on the other side of the bridge. There are people who welcome us and like send us like goodbyes when we are leaving certain ideas of thought. And so people have to welcome us into certain ideas of thought. There are people who are the ports of those bridges. And so I believe that that's my role in this is not always being the person that is designing the bridge. Sometimes I just work and I'm really good at working, but That all comes with knowing what my strengths are, which is I'm an articulate person and I have the vision for ideas and I can contribute that to literally anything that people need me to do. But Hmm. that comes with releasing that everything has to be my idea first. Um, So there are a lot of ways that I've worked through, I feel like my educational background that really just it's not that that's what all of this is about. I feel like it's a really elitist perspective for me to think that my education is why I'm like this. Um, mm. But I think that my education helped me figure out how I could actually apply it in ways that applied to people that I cared about and not just the way that people wanted to use my skills to better themselves.
1: You no, know, it's so powerful that you say that because even for me, you know, I. I've been educated. I've 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 gone to the great colleges. I've gone to the great universities. I've worked with the great companies. But you know, a lot of what makes up your identity and how you create and how you build things or even why you do what you do is 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 fundamentally more than just you know where you went to school or what your degree is, but it's also is that, that like you have many identities. And I also grew up in the hood. So a lot of that kind of shifts and shapes my perspective on how I build things. And I love what you say. I think sometimes, you know, the, the best creative or the best way to create is to kind of just kind of be a harboring or a hub for people and their ideas and then try to find a way to manifest that and synthesize it. And often the best creatives kind of do just that.
0: Yeah. The people who are able to connect with community and creativity at once, are people who are able to take ideas and from a multitude of like perspectives and apply them into something that actually is beneficial for everyone. And so for me, it's really this idea, like, the, like it's a great word to use, it's like synthesizing. Being able to take two very, very different ideas and see some sort of commonality, and if not commonality, a common goal or framework is where I feel like my perspective comes from in life. And so intersectionality, this is a really, really broad term, but on like a small level, it's interpersonal, it's intercultural, it's those words that we know interfaith. And so these ideas of like, there can be a lot of perspectives that operate at once exist in a lot of different, like a lot of different things. But when it comes to creativity in particular, it's really, we get the opposite response to our openness, which is that we should be more closed off. We should be more focused. We should be more targeted and more specific and, I just feel like for me personally, being more specific is distracting because I'm not open to everything that's going on around me. And so I think growing up in the hood, growing up in Detroit, growing up in California, being a little bit nomadic and also like I've lived in a lot of different places. I've been to 11 different schools. I've been to private schools, public schools, charter schools. I've grown up around kids that are dirt poor in the country and I've grown up around kids in Orange County that are affluent and white. And we have a lot of different perspectives. I've grown up in predominantly Hispanic places. Like I was Mm -hmm. the only black person on my campus in high school. So there was no black students, faculty or staff, and there was no black visitors besides my family. So this idea of being able to fit just right where I'm at, because that's the only option that I have is the way that I take through life, that there are so many people like me that are trying to just fit in spaces because that's where their life has positioned them. But when it actually comes to what they're able to do in that position, it seems like them not being true to their identity is the reason why they can't perform at the level that they feel like they're capable of. And so the identity piece becomes more important than the skill set because the skill set was what they had when they came in. The identity is something that like is developing over time and also has this like this past to it. I don't know how to explain it in like this 30 minute slot but i i have a, a lot to say about the way that people interact with each other and the creative in the business space and so yeah. that's kind of where i insert myself
1: yeah well let, let me ask you as a creative you know kind of you know rest in peace to the late great Chadwick Bozeman and you know being able to see all the things that because you share a huge kind of like of honor um, on your Instagram to him and all of his amazing work that he did. You know, what kind of like, uh, for for those who do creative work and often have to put themselves out there and their work out there, and even for Chadwick, he was dying in doing it. You know, how does one kind of have a wrangle on their identity and really be able to kind of be grounded in who they are as they kind of give to the, to the world their art? I'd love to get your thoughts on that.
0: Wow. I think that's a really good question. I I would say it's a good question for me because people often ask me about certain aspects of the way that I present myself online. Um, I would say that I'm a pretty private person. And so when going on any of my social media feeds, you'll see very like particular elements of my personality or my character, or the things that I believe in or, but there isn't really this whole culmination of like a digestible portfolio of myself that people can just look at and get the whole gist of who I am. So I think one, releasing the fact that people are going to get the full scope of you digitally is the first step because it's just really digital communication. And this is a, an area of my study in my field, rhetoric communication, that's the least studied because digital communication is the most recent. And so there are a lot of people studying it right now But my theory has always been that digital communication may not be the way that we should initiate intimate relationships, but it is one of the most powerful ways to maintain intimate relationships that we have currently. And that's what we see during quarantine. Everything that we're maintaining relationship-wise is digital. And so I think there are ways for you to be authentic to yourself, but I would say that I look at social media because I know that people can get this full scope of, of me. I look at it more of as an opportunity for me to control people's perception of who I am, and it's not about me. I work a lot in my program trying to like get people to recognize that influence is not bad because we have such a weird culture with influence. We'll listen to the media, but we won't listen to our friends. And so this aspect of the less personal it is, the more authority that we give it, is like an area of study that we have to like really look into um so i feel like for me personally i just keep in mind that people aren't going to know everything about me and that's okay i have Mm. the opportunity to control the perception that the world has of me through all of these platforms which has given me an immense amount of opportunities and that's okay some people don't have that and they're not able to like present themselves in this package that's okay i just think you have to identify what you're using social media for and not Mm. feel like it's a a supplement it's supposed to complement the other work that you do in the world thor- in life and so i don't know people give a little bit too much of their identity to social media because it really should just be something that allows you to display your personality or display the things that you like about yourself and
1: yeah that's fine <laughs> and elements of you know it's so it's so funny that you said that because i mean for example, like when uh, when a lot of people were talking about after they heard about Chadwick Boseman dying, you know, when he was putting a lot of like photos of himself out there, a lot of people didn't realize that he was yeah. dying and suffering from um, cancer, and he kept it so hidden. And like he would do talks, he would do interviews, he would talk about it, he would visit cancer patients, and you wouldn't even know that he was doing all of this like he was doing he was doing it all for a reason but we had no idea so i think it really speaks to this element of like you know it's you know social media in a very powerful way we use it so we get people what they want to see but really beyond it all like you won't really get a full collage of who someone is or what they're going through yeah. just by what you see in the media and that's actually a really really powerful construct even for me
0: And I just think that it's okay that he didn't want people to see him in any light than what he displayed. I think we should honor that. We shouldn't be prying. We shouldn't be asking people for more insight to things that they're not comfortable sharing. I think Chadwick Boseman is a great example of people using their influence in the way that they see fit. And I think this idea that we are entitled to people's influence is like really an agent of like capitalism and an agent of our like, country here we're told that like we should just keep getting more and more and more from people and that we're going to want to buy more from them if we know more about them or we're going to like them more if we know more about them or we should just keep all of that is like and from a marketing perspective all of that is for you to buy every level of marketing for you to buy every access to the person for you to buy every lick of information every magazine that has a story about their personal life like those things shouldn't exist because you shouldn't care about what people are doing in their personal life. If they're displaying this to you, they're giving you seven movies while they have cancer. They're giving you talks. They're giving you, why do you want any more than that? Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) that doesn't make sense to me. And so I don't feel like I personally allow myself to feel pressured for people like about what people want to see from me because I know what people want to see for me. They want to see the modeling, they want to see my body, they want to see how great I look. I know I look great every single day. I <laughs> and that's it. But yeah. like when I'm creating or when I'm in this process and that goes into like the writing aspect, people really haven't understood my switch to the writing because I'm always talking about writing like yeah. no I'm not coming because I'm just going to sit and write. Yes, I did book an entire trip so that I can just go and write. Yes, I am gonna write in the morning. Yes, I am gonna write at night. Like this aspect of not giving in to what people want from me is a really big, big like a really big thing for me right now.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. That's I love that. I love that. You know, I, I want to ask you, you know, so what's next for you, Tyler, and everything that you're doing? Because you're doing a lot of writing, a lot of poetry right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so where are you looking to take it? Is a book coming out of all of this? <laughs> you know, what's the next concept that that, that you're you're looking to create to push out to the world?
0: So on the poetry side, I, so I'm a person that obviously we had this conversation before I have so many different streams. I look at them as streams. So just like everybody is like really, and I would say facetiously, but just trying to build these seven streams of income. I don't know who told people that, but like That line of rhetoric is driving me nuts because they don't even recognize how diversifying streams of income works because it's not even just about having seven jobs. You can create seven incomes from one job. But Mm -hmm. it's like, I, I feel like my streams, I have to think about it in like, when I think about future plans, I have to think about it like that. And so the poetry is one aspect of my life that's like the most personal and intimate aspect of my career. Um, and I don't really rush it. I have a couple of books that I'm working on. I released an, a digital copy of like an ebook in January. So essentially in my poetry I would like for me to start with the world and like make accessibility the fore, like the forethought of everything. So making sure that people can listen to it if they're blind, making sure that people can read it if they're deaf, making sure that people mm. can access it if they don't have the funds, making sure that people have, all ways to get all of the literature that's kind of my first thought process and so i've been making like little cheap digital ebooks and that allows people to download a pdf straight to their whatever device that they'd like they can download it as many times as they need to um and that for me has just been extremely helpful because it allows me to set goals with my writing so with the poetry i just don't have a I'm not giving myself that sort of constraint it just is something that evolves over time and over the past year it has really evolved people see where poetry is needing and branding work i'm getting more commercials that are based off or auditions that are based off of my poetry like i want to build a body of work with my poetry that's as good as my modeling or my acting or any other portfolio that i have and so i essentially want to take this into more visual pieces and doing videos and things like that so i've done a lot more of that work. I'm performing my pieces. Um, I really am just trying to build this like real body of literary work so that this this like renaissance that we're talking about. This yeah. is so funny that you use the word renaissance. I was just tweeting about this yesterday. Um, people were asking about what black films would you like to be made about whatever topic within the black community since we're so mm. collectively tired of a one narrative movie. like. Something that I was talking about is this idea of the Negressence movement. And so, after the Harlem Renaissance ended, people fled to France. Lots of black people fled to France. That's James Baldwin. That's so literary, like work, like thought thinkers. They moved to France, and in France, they started this Negressence movement that was centered around the development of the African or black spirit, the person, like how we develop from our personality to what we like, what we don't mm. like, how we experience racism they were really trying to do the work like the the, the work <laughs> and mental I, work i think it should be something that all black people know about and the, negressence, the this sounds like something that is more us it literally is a word that's built for us like philosophers even white philosophers in france at the time were lending their thinking to us john paul sartre wrote incredible like philosophy with france fanon a black philosopher about how crazy white supremacy was and how it didn't even make sense to allow people to live thinking that they're inferior like i think that is where i'm at is this real literary chunk the harlem renaissance was very fun there are lots of aspects that were about bringing our culture to spirit and just allowing ourselves to live but then people had to do the work after and the reason why we documented that was because people were doing the work after like I, i consider myself a literary artist and i would say that we aren't empowering uh, empowering literary artists as much as we are visual artists, and we will collectively regret that if we don't change that.
1: That's powerful. That's powerful. Well, we're excited to you know support you in that movement and see you know where you take things, especially with you know how you kind of multimodalize your your poetry and put it in different formats, because that's really the exciting thing about words. Um, because often, even for me, I'm a poet as well. Is like word art something that we should just see as stuck on a traditional piece of paper. But I've loved how even in post-COVID-19 um, with uh, kind of the shift of more people recognizing the world, recognizing the Black Lives Matter movement and our humanity is even here in Oakland, I'm seeing graffiti with words of of, of bravery and bravado and a lot of rebellion to a degree, but it's, it's progressive rebellion, like in the streets. And, you know, I think words lead to art. Um, and, you know, I love what you said about you know, you as a literary artist, you feel as if like you're 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 gonna take it into different visuals and different formats because that's what we need. I think that's what we need in, in today's day and generation. And you know, we're excited to to support you in that movement, Tyler.
0: Sorry, I don't know what happened.
1: Ah, no worries, no worries, no worries. We can still hear you though.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on.
1: We can still hear you. With that said, Tyler, you know how can how can people follow you and, and join the movement and what you're building?
0: Oh, there's a lot of ways to get in touch. The easiest is to follow me on Instagram and Twitter, Tyler Faye. Um, Tyler Faye underscores my Twitter. A uh, really neat way to get involved with the things that I'm doing is actually joining my company and our like our initiative and our movement. So our company is Black Nation Incorporated, and essentially we're doing black business development and incubation, and we're trying to connect black consumers with all businesses and we're trying to connect black businesses with all consumers. This idea of being able to make it accessible for black people to shop with black people and making it accessible for the world to see us as contributors economically. And I am doing a lot of really cool work there. Black Nation United is our Instagram and our Twitter, Black Nation Inc. on Facebook. But we're... Looking for businesses to register with us now so that we can be listing businesses. We are looking for people that we would like to start developing pretty quickly. Um, and we're looking for vendors. We're releasing a Black-owned subscription-based box. And so people would wow. bring Black-owned products um, through a subscription box. And we're looking for vendors for that as well. So Black-owned products and Black-owned product owners, please hit us up. But yeah, I Thank there's you. a lot of ways to get tapped in on what I'm doing. <laughs>
1: Love it. So get tapped in if you just heard that. And if you're tuning in right now, get tapped in to what Mrs. Faye is definitely doing in her movie. Tyler, we need to have you on for a future episode. What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely? Um, (laughs) Let's dive deep again.
0: People are going to be like, what was she even saying? I get so (laughs) abstract sometimes. But yes, bring me back on so I can explain myself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Talk to you
1: soon. You too. And that was the amazing Tyler Faye. Make sure you check out her movement. If have shared her Instagram with you in the comments. With that said, that caps on our afternoon, early morning, mid-morning afternoon episode of Guy Live B2B Jam Session. But we're not done today. Today been a, is a, is a, is a pop pack day. We actually have a few amazing guests later on in the evening if you want to catch that slot. So make sure you join us around 3 p.m. for our amazing guests on the B2B Jam Session. With that said, hope you're having a great Tuesday. If Oakland is in the building, show us some love, Oakland. Hit us up. If you're interested in being on the show for a future episode, check out utfow.com utfow.com if you're interested in being a guest, but you know someone that would be a perfect guest for a future episode on the show. With that said, thank you all so much for tuning in and checking out Tyler and Britt. Please, please follow their movements and all the amazing things that they're doing. And once again, rest in peace to the late, great Immaculate, awesome Chadwick Bozeman. Man, we missed that brother. We truly, truly missed that brother. All right, y'all. As always, peace, love, abundance, and talk to you soon. Sometimes
2: we say things that we really don't mean. We do things in between.